Chapter Twenty One of the Midnight Queen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chessy. The Midnight Queen by May Agnes Fleming. Chapter Twenty One. What was behind the mask? The cowering form rose up but seeing who it was sank down again with its face groveling in the dust and with another prolonged moaning cry madame mask he said wonderingly what is this he bent to raise her but with a sort of scream she held out her arms to keep him back no 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 touch me not hate me kill me i have murdered your friend sir norman recoiled as if from a deadly serpent murdered him madame in heaven's name what have you said oh i have not stabbed him or poisoned him or shot him but i am his murderer nevertheless she wailed writhing in a sort of gnawing inward torture madame i do not understand you at all surely you are raving when you talk like this still moaning on the edge of the plague pit she half rose up with both hands clasped tightly over her heart as if she would have held back from all human ken the anguish that was destroying her no no i am not mad pray heaven i were oh that they had strangled me in the first hour of my birth as they would a wiper rather than i should have lived through all this life of misery and guilt to end it by this last worst crime of all sir norman stood and looked at her still with a dazed expression he knew well enough whose murderer she called herself but why she did so or how she could possibly bring about his death was a mystery altogether too deep for him to solve madame compose yourself i beseech you and tell me what you mean it is to my friend ormiston you allude is it not yes yes surely you need not ask i know that he is dead and buried in this horrible place but why you should accuse yourself of murdering him i confess i do not know then you shall she cried passionately and you will wonder at it no longer you are the last one to whom the revelation can ever be made on earth and now that my hours are numbered it matters little whether it is told or not was it not you who first found him dead it was i yes and how he came to his end i have been puzzling myself in vain to discover ever since she rose up drew herself to her full majestic height and looked at him with a terrible glance shall i tell you you have had no hand in it he answered with a cold chill at the tone and look for he loved you i have had a hand in it i alone have been the cause of it but for me he would be living still madame exclaimed sir norman in horror you need not look as if you thought me mad for i tell you it is heaven's truth you say right he loved me 
but for that love he would be living now. You speak in riddles which I cannot read. How could that love have caused his death, since his dearest wishes were to be granted to-night? He told you that, did he? He did. He told me you were to remove your mask, and if, on seeing you, he still loved you, you were to be his wife. Then woe to him for ever having extorted such a promise from me. Oh, I warned him again and again and again. I told him how it would be. I begged him to desist. But no, he was blind. He was mad. He would rush on his own doom. I fulfilled my promise, and behold the result. She pointed with a frantic gesture to the plague pit, and wrung her beautiful hands with the same moaning of anguish. Do I hear aright? said Sir Norman, looking at her and really doubting if his ears had not deceived him. Do you mean to say that in keeping your word and showing him your face, you have caused his death? I do. I had warned him of it before. I told him there were sights too horrible to look on and live, but nothing would convince him. Oh, why was the curse of life ever bestowed upon such a hideous thing as I? Sir Norman gazed at her in a state of hopeless bewilderment. He had thought, from the moment he saw her first, that there was something wrong with her brain to make her act in such a mysterious, eccentric sort of way. But he had never positively thought her so far gone as this. In his own mind, he set her down now as being mad as a march hare, and accordingly answered in that soothing tone people used to imbeciles. My dear Madame Mask, pray do not excite yourself or say such dreadful things. I am sure you would not willfully cause the death of any one, much less that of one who loved you as he did. La Masque broke into a wild laugh almost worse to hear than her former despairing moans. The man thinks me mad. He will not believe unless he sees and knows for himself. Perhaps you too, Sir Norman Kingsley, she cried, changing into sudden fierceness, would like to see the face behind this mask, would like to see what has slain your friend and share his fate. Certainly, said Sir Norman, I should like to see it, and I think I may safely promise not to die from the effects. But surely, madame, you deceive yourself. No face, however ugly, even supposing you to possess such a one, could produce such dismay as to cause death. You shall see. She was looking down into the plague pit, standing so close to its cracking edge, that Sir Norman's blood ran cold in the momentary expectation to see her slip and fall headlong in. Her voice was less fierce and less wild, but her hands were still clasped tightly over her heart, as if to ease the unutterable pain there. Suddenly she looked up and said in an altered tone, "'You have lost Leoline?' Anne found her again. "'She is in the power of one Count L'Etrange.' And if in his power, pray, how have you found her? 
because we are both to meet in her presence within this very hour and she is to decide between us has count letrange promised you this he has and you have no doubt what her decision will be not the slightest how came you to know she was carried off by this count he confessed it himself voluntarily no i taxed him with it and he owned to the deed but he voluntarily promised to take me to her and abide by her decision extraordinary said la masque as if to herself whimsically as he is i scarcely expected he would give her up so easily as this then you know him madame said sir norman pointedly there are few things i do not know and rare are the disguises i cannot penetrate so you have discovered it too no madame my eyes were not sharp enough nor had i sufficient cleverness even for that it was hubert the earl of rochester's page who told me who he was ah the page said la masque quickly you have then been speaking to him what do you think of his resemblance to leoline i think it is the most astonishing resemblance i ever saw but he is not the only one who bears leoline's face and the other is the other is she whom you sent me to see in the old ruins madame i wish you would tell me the secret of this wonderful likeness for i am certain you know and i am equally certain it is not accidental you are right leoline knows already for with the presentiment that my end was near i visited her when you left and gave her her whole history in writing the explanation is simple enough leoline miranda and hubert are sisters and brother some misty idea that such was the case had been struggling through sir norman's slow mind unformed and without shape ever since he had seen the trio therefore he was not the least astonished when he heard the fact announced only in one thing he was a little disappointed then hubert is really a boy he said half dejectedly certainly he is what did you take him to be why i thought that is i do not know said sir norman quite blushing at being guilty of so much romance but that he was a woman in disguise you see he is so handsome and looks so much like leoline that i could not help thinking so he is leoline's twin brother that accounts for it when does she become your wife this very morning god willing said sir norman fervently amen and may her life and yours be long and happy what becomes of the rest since hubert is her brother he shall come with us if he will as for the other she alas is dead dead cried la masque how when she was living to-night true she died of a wound a wound surely not given by the dwarf's hand no no it was quite accidental but since you know so much of the dwarf perhaps you also know he is now the king's prisoner
I did not know it, but I surmised as much when I discovered that you and Count L'Etrange, followed by such a body of men, visited the ruin. Well, his career has been long and dark enough, and even the plague seems to spare him for the executioner. And so the poor mock queen is dead? Well, her sister will not long survive her. Good heavens, madame, cried Sir Norman, aghast. You do not mean to say that Leolin is going to die? Oh, no! I hope Leolin has a long and happy life before her. But the wretched, guilty sister I mean is myself, for I too, Sir Norman, am her sister. At this new disclosure, Sir Norman stood perfectly petrified, and La Masque, looking down at the dreadful place at her feet, went rapidly on. Alas and alas that it should be so, but it is the direful truth. We bear the same name, we had the same father, and yet I have been the curse and bane of their lives. And Leolin knows this. She never knew it until this night, or anyone else alive, and no one should know it now, were not my ghastly life ending. I prayed her to forgive me for the wrong I have done her, and she may, for she is gentle and good. But when, when shall I be able to forgive myself? The sharp pain in her voice charred on Sir Norman's ear and heart, and to get rid of its dreary echo, he hurriedly asked, You say you bear the same name. May I ask what name that is? It is one, Sir Norman Kingsley, before which your own ancient title pales. We are Montmorency, and in our veins runs the proudest blood in France. Then Leolin is French and of noble birth, said Sir Norman, with a thrill of pleasure. I loved her for herself alone, and would have wedded her had she been the child of a beggar. But I rejoice to hear this nevertheless. Her father, then, bore a title? Her father was the Marquis de Montmorency, but Leolin's mother and mine were not the same. Had they been, the lives of all four might have been very different. But it is too late to lament that now. My mother had no gentle blood in her veins, as Leolin's had, for she was but a fisherman's daughter, torn from her home and married by force. Neither did she love my father, notwithstanding his youth, rank and passionate love for her, for she was betrothed to another bourgeois like herself. For his sake, she refused even the title of marchioness offered her in the moment of youthful and ardent passion, and clung with deathless truth to her fisher-lover. The blood of the Montmorency is fierce and hot, and brooks no opposition. Sir Norman thought of Miranda, and inwardly owned that that was a fact. And the Marquis, in his jealous wrath, both hated and loved her at the same time, and vowed deadly vengeance against her bourgeois lover. That vow he kept. The young fisherman was found one morning at his lady-love's door without a head, and the bleeding trunk told no tales. 
of course for a while she was distracted and so on but when the first shock of her grief was over my father carried her off and forcibly made her his wife fierce hatred i told you was mingled with his fierce love and before the honeymoon was over it began to break out one night in a fit of jealous passion to which he was addicted he led her into a room she had never before been permitted to enter showed her a grinning human skull and told her it was her lover's in his cruel exultation he confessed all how he had caused him to be murdered his head severed from the body and brought here to punish her some day for her obstinate refusal to love him up to this time she had been quiet and passive bearing her fate with a sort of dumb resignation but now a spirit of vengeance fiercer and more terrible than his own began to kindle within her and kneeling down before the ghastly thing she breathed a wish a prayer to the avenging jehovah so unutterably horrible that even her husband had to fly with curdling blood from the room that dreadful prayer was heard that wish fulfilled in me but long before i looked on the light of day that frantic woman had repented of the awful deed she had done repentance came too late the sin of the father was visited on the child and on the mother too for the moment her eyes fell upon me she became a raving maniac and died before the first day of my life had ended nurse and physician fled at the sight of me but my father though thrilling with horror bore the shock and bowed to the retributive justice of the angry deity she had invoked his whole life his whole nature changed from that hour and kneeling beside my dead mother as he afterward told me he vowed before high heaven to cherish and love me even as though i had not been the ghastly creature i was the physician he bound by a terrible oath to silence the nurse he forced back and in spite of her disgust and abhorrence compelled her to nurse and care for me the dead was buried out of sight and we had rooms in a distant part of the house which no one ever entered but my father and the nurse though set apart from my birth as something accursed i had the intellect and capacity of yes far greater intellect and capacity than most children and as years passed by my father true to his vow became himself my tutor and companion he did not love me that was an utter impossibility but time so blunts the edge of all things that even the nurse became reconciled to me and my father could scarcely do less than a stranger so i was cared for and instructed and educated and knowing not what a monstrosity i was i loved them both ardently and lived on happily enough in my splendid prison for my first ten years in this world then came a change my nurse died and it became clear that i must quit my solitary life and see the sort of world i lived in so my father seeing all this sat down in the twilight one night beside me and told me the story of my own hideousness
I was but a child then, and it is many and many years ago. But this grey summer morning, I feel what I felt then as vividly as I did at the time. I had not learned the great lesson of life then. Endurance, I have scarcely learned it yet, or I should bear life's burden longer. But that first night's despair has darkened my whole after-life. For weeks I would not listen to my father's proposal, to hide what would send all the world from me in loathing behind a mask. But I came to my senses at last, and from that day to the present, more days than either you or I would care to count, it has not been one hour altogether off my face. I was the wonder and talk of Paris when I did appear, and most of the surmises were wild and wide of the mark, some even going so far as to say it was all owing to my wonderful, unheard-of beauty that I was thus mysteriously concealed from you. I had a soft voice and a tolerable shape, and upon this, I presume, they founded the affirmation. But my father and I kept our own counsel, and let them say what they listed. I had never been named as other children are, but they called me La Masque now. I had masters and professors without end, and studied astronomy and astrology and the mystic lore of the old Egyptians, and became noted as a prodigy and a wonder and a miracle of learning far and near. The arts used to discover the mystery and make me unmask were innumerable and almost incredible, but I baffled them all and began after a time rather to enjoy the sensation I created than otherwise. There was one in particular, possessed of even more devouring curiosity than the rest, a certain young countess of miraculous beauty whom I need not describe since you have her very image in Leolin. The Marquis de Montmorency, of a somewhat inflammable nature, loved her almost as much as he had done my mother, and she accepted him, and they were married. She may have loved him, I see no reason why she should not, but still to this day I think it was more to discover the secret of La Masque than from any other cause. I loved my beautiful new mother too well to let her find it out, although from the day she entered our house as a bride, until that on which she lay on her deathbed, her whole aim, day and night, was its discovery. There seemed to be a fatality about my father's wives, for the beautiful Honorine lived scarcely longer than her predecessor, and she died leaving three children, all born at one time. You know them well, and one of them you love. To my care she entrusted them on her deathbed, and she could have scarcely entrusted them to worse. For though I liked her, I most decidedly disliked them. They were lovely children, their lovely mother's image, and they were named Hubert, Leolin, and Honorin, or as you knew her, Miranda. Even my father did not seem to care for them much, not even as much as he cared for me. And when he lay on his deathbed, one year later, 
I was left, young as I was, the sole guardian and trustee of all his wealth. That wealth was not fairly divided, one half being left to me and the other half to be shared equally between them. But in my wicked ambition I was not satisfied even with that. Some of my father's fierce and cruel nature I inherited, and I resolved to be clear of these three stumbling-blocks and recompense myself for my other misfortunes by every indulgence boundless riches could bestow. So secretly and in the night I left my home with an old and trusty servant, known to you as Prudence, and my unfortunate little brother and sisters. Strange to say, Prudence was attached to one of them, and to neither of the rest. That one was Leolin, whom she resolved to keep and care for, and neither she nor I minded what became of the other two. From Paris we went to Dijon, where we dropped Hubert into the turn at the convent door, with his name attached, and left him where he would be well taken care of and no questions asked. With the other two we started for Calais en route for England, and their prudence got rid of Honorine in a singular manner. A packet was about starting for the island of our destination, and she saw a strange-looking little man carrying his luggage from the wharf into a boat. She had the infant in her arms, having carried it out for the identical purpose of getting rid of it. And, without more ado, she laid it down, unseen, among boxes and bundles, and, like Hagar, stood afar off to see what became of it. That ugly little man was the dwarf, and his amazement on finding it among his goods and chattels you may imagine. But he kept it notwithstanding, though why is best known to himself. A few weeks after that we too came over, and Prudence took up her residence in a quiet village a long way from London. Thus you see, Sir Norman, how it comes about that we are so related, and the wrong I have done them all. You have indeed, said Sir Norman gravely, having listened, much shocked and displeased, at this open confession. And to one of them it is beyond our power to atone. Do you know the life of misery to which she has been assigned? I know it all and have repented for it in my own heart in dust and ashes. Even I, unlike all other earthly creatures as I am, have a conscience, and it has given me no rest night or day since. From that hour I have never lost sight of them. Every sorrow they have undergone has been known to me and added to my own. And yet I could not, or would not, undo what I had done. Leolin knows all now, and she will tell Hubert, since destiny has brought them together. And whether they will forgive me, I know not. But yet they might, for they have long and happy lives before them, and we can forgive everything to the dead. But you are not dead, said Sir Norman, and there is repentance and pardon for all. Much as you have wronged them, they will forgive you, and heaven is not less merciful than they. They may, for I have striven to atone, 
in my house there are proofs and papers that will put them in possession of all and more than all they have lost but life is a burden of torture i will bear no longer the death of him who died for me this night is the crowning tragedy of my miserable life and if my hour were not at hand i should not have told you this but you have not told me the fearful cause of so much guilt and suffering what is behind that mask would you too see she asked in a terrible voice and die i have told you it is not in my nature to die easily and it is something far stronger than mere curiosity makes me ask be it so the sky is growing red with day dawn and i shall never see the sun rise more for i am already plague-struck that sweetest of all voices ceased the white hands removed the mask and the floating coils of hair and revealed to sir norman's horror-struck gaze the grisly face and head and the hollow eye-sockets the grinning mouth and fleshless cheeks of a skeleton he saw it but for one fearful instant the next she had thrown up both arms and leaped headlong into the loathly plague-pit he saw her for a second or two heaving and writhing in the putrid heap and then the strong man reeled and fell with his face on the ground not feigning but sick unto death of all the dreadful things he had witnessed that night there was nothing so dreadful as this of all the horror he had felt before there was none to equal what he felt now in his momentary delirium it seemed to him she was reaching her arms of bone up to drag him in and that the skeleton face was grinning at him on the edge of the awful pit and covering his eyes with his hands he sprang up and fled away End of chapter 21